0: All right, my name is Matt Barr and you are listening to episode one of the Looking Sideways podcast, a podcast where I try and uncover the most interesting stories in action sports and other related endeavors. On today's episode, the first episode, I'm lucky enough to speak to Ski Sunday presenter Ed Lee. Why Ed Lee? Well, Ed Lee is an English TV presenter and snowboarder who for the last two decades has been living one of the most extraordinary and enviable snowboarding lives imaginable, really. He's a TV presenter, he's a journalist, he's an ex-editor of Whiteline Snowboarding Magazine. Uh, Today he presents flagship BBC winter sports programme Ski Sunday. He's basically been around the block and then some, and has got a lot of interesting stories to tell about that. So I've known Ed, full disclosure, for a long time now. He's actually one of my oldest and closest friends in snowboarding. We met back in, I would probably guess, 1996, maybe, when we were both about 20. So I have tried to keep this conversation from becoming a bit of a back-slapping clique fest. But there are inevitably some sections where two old mates do fall into some mutually enjoyable reminiscing. So uh, apologies in advance for that. Actually, no apologies in advance for that because it was actually really good fun having an hour and a half to catch up with one of my oldest mates and hopefully that comes across really well in the podcast. I should probably also flag up the fact that the conversation does pretty much immediately become a full-on snowboarding geek fest. The phrase
1: cab 1260 double shifty roast beef
0: gets dropped by Ed within the first three minutes, I think. But I'd really implore you not to be put off by that and not turn off. If you stick with it, you'll find that Ed's descriptions of his life in snowboarding and his broadcasting career are to savor. He really is um a man with more stories than he knows what to do with and once he warms up then you'll as you'll hear he really gets going. And um, we recorded this podcast sitting in Ed's car in a car park at the Ispo trade show in Munich, so there are a couple of minutes where the audio gets a little bit muffled. If you're listening to this around your kids are in public, you might also want to be aware that there are swear words and on occasion You might jump out of your bus seat at the sheer volume of Ed's excitability as he gets particularly involved in a couple of anecdotes. But more importantly, there are moments of poignancy, articulacy and sheer wonder really as Ed digs in and explains the long journey that led him to this current point. Like a lot of British snowboarders of of our age, I'm 40. I mean, this has been recorded in February 2017 um, and Ed is 41, I believe. We had a pretty similar story, actually. I mean, Ed's sideways path began at the end of the 1980s when he got into skating as a little kid. Uh, He was living in the small English town of Gloucester, um, which luckily enough had a local plastic dry slope nearby. So pretty soon after that, he was introduced by his parents to skiing at the dry slope. And it's these two events, really, discovering skateboarding, discovering the local dry slope, which would change Ed's life in ways that he obviously could never have imagined. Uh, I think he says at one point, I consider myself ridiculously lucky. Snowboarding has given me everything and it keeps on giving. Something that comes across pretty well in this interview. And over the years, Ed's lived a lot of different types of snowboarding life. He was a dirtbag season air when I met him. He was a semi-professional UK pro. Soon after, he became editor of White Line Snowboarding magazine. Then he progressed to becoming a commentator, an announcer, an MC, a pundit. And these developments all led him to where he is now, which is a TV presenter and broadcaster, probably the UK's foremost snowboarding commentator, I would say, and definitely one of the most respected media presences in world snowboarding. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Throughout all that, though, I mean, Ed has never changed him. He's a frothing snowboarder. He's been frothing since the day I met him. I was lucky enough to go riding with him couple of years ago in Lenzer in Switzerland and he was frothing then I mean he was still winging himself of everything still the most stoked man on a snowboard ever and that has never changed I've got no doubt that never will change I mean the man loves snowboarding there's no doubt about that today he presents the UK's um, biggest winter sports show Ski Sunday and um, he also commentates on the Olympics for snowboarding and other niche sports i think he's done the beach volleyball in his time and in this very wide ranging conversation ed takes us from gloucester to alaska via the thames estuary and svalbard in the arctic as we cover the highlights and lowlights of his career how he ended up presenting ski sunday what it's like for an ordinary snowboarder to ride alaska his favorite everyday snowboarding the health regime that he hopes is going to keep him going well into his 50s and 60s, and what he really thought about the controversy surrounding his commentary on Jenny Jones' historic bronze medal, um, which is a pretty interesting part of the conversation, actually. So Ed still spends roughly six months of the year on the road pursuing his uh, passion for snowboarding. And as I say, he's still the same insanely stoked rider he's he's always been. So uh sit back. It's about an hour long this one. Enjoy Ed Lee, a life in snowboarding. Ed Lee, thanks for joining me. Pleasure. On the Looking Sideways podcast. So you're fresh off the boat from Innsbruck for the Aaron Style. How was that?
1: Really, really interesting. It's um, difficult to say with big air at the moment because you've arrived at this point really quickly where backside triple cork 1440 is the benchmark. So I think first three or four riders down are all trying that trick and you've got to land that. And then the creativity starts. Um first time women had been invited though and for me that made all the difference. You're seeing massive diversity of tricks. Genuinely interesting differences in style. I mean uh I think it was Max Parrow, Marcus Cleveland and Mike Cicerelli, uh and someone else all through Backside 1440 Mutes. And then, second jumps, you start to see the sixteen twenties or Sven Thorgren with cab twelve sixty double shifty roast beef and that I don't mind the big spin stuff, but you want to see some creativity like that in there, otherwise there's sort of it's almost like they need to get rid of get the backside triple cork fourteen forties out of the way, and then we can all enjoy the good tricks and um <laughs> how did How did the standard of the girls' riding compare? They weren't all there. there was a clash with the mammoth. Grand Prix in the States, so Jamie Anderson Hayley Langland out, Claudia Medlover and Spencer O'Brien both injured, so robbed of a bit of the high-end talent, but still uh, four women there all with a ten in their bag, none of them pulled it out, obviously working with some of their stock tricks to get scores up, but um, Anna Gasser first Austrian to win on home turf, should have been, it was a shoe-in since Stefan Gimple in 2001 and uh didn't even qualify for the finals wow dropped two backside 720s didn't even sniff round the cab double cork so she was out but any rookie yavi Cab seven that probably 15 years ago would have given Stefan Gimple a decent run for the men's. So yeah, it was it was lovely seeing that. There's some really I feel with women snowboarding at the moment you've got so much energy coming in with the young girls like Claudia Madlova, Hailey Langland, and Katie Ormerod, that it's I think X Games with that cab double cork ten will be a turning point. You've got Cena Kandrian, Spencer O'Brien, um, Sheryl Mass, Shirsty Bors, those elder stateswomen of the sport, who've now got to look very closely at what they're doing and say, do I want to go and learn a double? And it's it's going to be a really interesting couple of years, I think. So what were you uh, doing there in a professional capacity? First time, I worked for the BBC on a winter sports show for seven Shows during the winter. It's the only time winter sport gets any mainstream coverage in the UK. So Ski, Ski Sunday, obviously. Yeah, it goes out six o'clock on a Sunday night on BBC Two. Uh, gets a pretty big audience for what it is: skiing and snowboarding. What, and what are
0: those figures like these days?
1: One point eight to two million
0: consistently. Okay. And it's prime time, isn't it? So it's like like you say, it's the biggest platform. That we have in the uk for winter sports isn't it
1: yeah and my role within that is usually doing a bit of freestyle or a bit of adventure lifestyle stuff around the ski racing which is front and center for the first 25 30 minutes of the show and last night uh, was the first time we got to put air and style instead of a ski race and
0: so so, sorry that's the first time you've ever got snowboarding
1: ahead of a ski race yeah okay so so no ski race featured the snowboarding was the main event and that for me was massive it was a big opportunity and i have a very unique position in that i can see i'm not blinded by snowboarding's more fun i actually get to see from the business end how skiing and snowboarding compare in their professionalism of the media product they produce and it's very difficult to make an argument for snowboarding when you've got no consistent tour you've got no uh consistency in the athletes and most of the time even Aaron Stahl, a global tour you've got different crews setting up different host broadcasters in beijing innsbruck and la so these guys don't have the experience that in front media who run all the ski racing and are doing three or four races a week and The crew that I work with, no, they go to the live OB truck, put a hard drive in there, and two minutes after the race is done, they take the hard drive out, they've got all of the footage. There's obviously a big risk involved in going with a production company you've never worked with when you've only got 16 hours to turn a show around and say, I hope they put all of the action on this hard drive. Otherwise, our BBC shows out the window. So have you had a hard
0: time persuading the BBC to take, as they would see it, the risk to do a snowboarding event? they
1: did it in 2007 with the Roxy Chicken Jam and got their fingers burnt and we've been slowly working up to it the Lark's Open, aka the Burton European Open has been getting there slowly but uh it wasn't it wasn't my choice. I just try and deliver as much as we can, but it was the producers' decision in the end. They saw it as a valid uh event. It's got the profile and critically we've got British athletes in Last night in Rowan Coltus, Billy Morgan, and Katie Ormerald who actually warrant that that level of coverage, and how did they get on uh Rowan coltus first time at Aaron style he made he 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 made the semis and then he made the finals and he's got a beautiful cab twelve sixty melon and he pulled it out absolutely stomped it when a lot of very experienced riders were struggling with the conditions bit windy uh landing was quite hard and semi-finals especially it was it became a question of who could put two clean jumps down the eighth place bubble was decided between Seb Toots and Sepe Smits and they both had a proper like cling to their tails riding out and um, it, that was what decided who went through to the finals so it was it was about being smart being consistent and he proved that last night he's phenomenal talent if he can add i'm loath to say it, the backside triple court 1440 then the boy's going to be up there consistently and how did uh, katie ormrod do uh second place she had a sniff around first um she did a cab nine Uh, backside seven and then she went for a backside nine last hit and she's it's really difficult for these guys and really important fact to know trick selection becomes everything in a big air contest because you've got to work out how many more points you need and realistically whether you can you can throw the trick you need for those points on a certain jump so you'll see a lot of times someone like anagasa had the decision do i try and land my backside seven that I've already had a go at or do I have a go at a cab double under flip and you can go in qualifying she knows that a nice back seven from her will be enough so she went for that and missed it and lost out. Katie lands absolutely everything she's so consistent at landing but every week she has to compete like she's getting three or four days between contests so the idea of getting to tidy any of those tricks up for her is at the moment impossible. She's got to wait until after the US Open uh, for for either contests that are more relaxed, like nine royals, used to be nine knights and nine queens, or uh, just going and riding, Dubai, Countertail, wherever, and, and enjoying that. Because at the moment, she's only got the grabs for kind of 90, 180 degrees. And if she can get the grabs on those for 360, 540, She's going to be close to unbeatable, I think, because she's so... Con- she goes massive and she lands. She just needs to add a little bit more style in there and she'll have it.
0: So what does it mean for UK snowboarding now? Do you think that we've got athletes like Rowan and Katie and Billy and, you know, there's a, there's quite a long
1: list of them, really, um, that are doing so well on this, a stage like the Aaron style? We look at the finals last night. I think it was one Swede, uh, three Canadians... Uh, two Norwegians, two Brits. That's pretty mental. If you're a British snowboarder, to think that Aaron Star has got two Brits in the final—that I kind of—I had that realization halfway through the final. I was like, "Oh my god, this is quite mad." This it, having a Brit in the qualifiers used to be a really big deal, but two in the finals was was wonderful. And talking to them, I think that's that's the most interesting bit. That they have. A sense of camaraderie there. They get on with all of the other riders, but being up there, having a joke and a laugh, relaxing, having, it, having the support, like Rowan and Billy are both visible in each of Katie's runs, laughing, joking, just making her feel relaxed before those runs. And that makes a huge difference. So um, how many seasons of Ski Sunday are you on now? This is my 10th year. It's a decade. I did the Olympics in 2006 and that kind of shifted the focus a little bit. And then they I was allowed on Ski Sunday. I was invited on Ski Sunday in 2007.
0: Allowed on, that's quite a telling slip. <laughs> Freudian because it, slip. Because it kind of suggests that you almost still feel like you, you shouldn't really be there.
1: Never, never ever by the um, BBC crew they're fantastic and they don't, they're so open. And they were really excited about covering a snowboard event this year, but um, by the Alpine skiing community, I've been clotheslined in lift queues. I've had accreditation ripped off me. You get shouted out. I've had old women attack me for being anywhere near Alpine races on a snowboard. They genuinely, re- they get really, really upset about it. So you, you just can't, you can't penetrate that, men, that old school alpine skiing mentality. And I don't know, I'm, I'm not a massive anarchist, but I do really enjoy winding them up. There's an element of me that just can't resist it. When they bite. I had one guy a couple of years ago in Vengen, and I was riding into the media and racers queue because there was an enormous queue for the lift. And I, I rode in quite fast. But he kept his eye, he didn't say anything, he didn't indicate that he was going to do anything. He waited until I got there and then he, big farmer's lad, stuck his arm out just at throat level and then stepped into it and clotheslined me through the throat, absolutely wow. flattened me. I mean, that is aggressive behaviour. Yeah, I was flat on my back, kind of semi-choking and I managed to undo my jacket and show him my accreditation just in case he was going <laughs> to kick me in. No sorry, no nothing, he just kind of went <laughs> and walked off. Okay. So, so how how did you get the gig? How did you get the Ski Sunday gig? Because I well I mean, actually a better question might be how did your broadcasting career start? Um I was in a bar in Val d'Isere during the Brits in nineteen ninety-five and I was pretty sure I could do a front flip off the bar. It was it was, it was the Brits. It was an enormous party interspersed with some snowboarding. And yeah, it was a lo- really low ceiling. It was probably only a foot higher than your head. And for so- I stood on the bar, crouched, because my back and shoulders were on the ceiling. And for some reason, I thought I'd be able to front flip. And it was a concrete floor. And I'm pr- I, if I didn't break my neck, I did something really serious. But I definitely <laughs> couldn't ride the next day. And Colin from Blackfly said, you, you grab the mic. You, you have a chat. You can talk. I was like, oh, OK, I've never done this before. Oh, like MC the event? Yes, I, I. that was my first bit of sort of organised public speaking. I'm very pleased to say that I was the architect of Gumby making it into the finals of that event um, and then nearly killing himself. Probably the stupidest thing I've ever seen on a snowboard. And what happened there? Um, Gumby was the local favourite, uh, proper hucker, very little talent at the time. He, he's since gone on to become a very good rider, but at the time his his thought was... It's a big air contest, not a fucking best trick contest. (laughs) So his idea was, I should win if I go biggest. And there was no way that the fact the tabletop was only seven metres long, that was going to stop him. The landing was only another five metres. So um, I was really, I'd been given the list of finalists and Colin had specifically said not Gumby because the crowd were chanting, Gumby, Gumby. I was like, right, here's the finalist, Gumby. So I read them down and got to the end and looked at Colin. He went, <laughs> shook his <laughs> head vigorously, and I said, and Gumby! And everyone went, Way! So Gumby walked up with everyone else, and it was the half pipe was the running, and where you dropped into the half pipe was where everyone rode down. And Gumby just carried on up into the trees and disappeared out of sight. And Russ Ward came down, Danny Wheeler, I think Neil McNabb, Justin Allison, and Steve Bailey, Stu Chris Moran still to go like it was a classic lineup of the best of British 90s snow yeah the 90s
0: elite yeah and, and Gumby Gummy.
1: <laughs> and uh, he I called his name and there was a good 10-15 second pause nothing happened and then he appeared out of the trees still above where everyone else was dropping in probably doing about 30k's an hour and he ollied out of the trees over where everyone else was sat and the crowd had spotted him by this stage and they just started to chant, Gumby, Gumby. And he was still he hadn't put a turn in and he was straight lining down the middle of the pipe. And the kicker itself was probably about 10 foot tall. And the transition was so tight. Anyone with a basic <laughs> grasp of physics knew that he was going way too fast to do anything except just compress on the face of the kicker. And everyone's yelling louder and louder and he hasn't backed off. And he's, 's gone beat, gone and beat. And I was stood right next to the kicker and I watched him come in. His legs just crumpled. He sat down on his board and then exploded board first out the top of the kicker at Mach 10. And I was stood right next to it. I remember seeing his head disappearing into the distance as he was winding down the windows and the, the toe edge just rising in front of him into this involuntary backflip. And he must have been, I've seen the sequence of it, he must have been 40 foot up. He'd already cleared the tabletop and all of the landing and he'd probably just come to the apex by then. And he succumbed to the backflip and I saw him just throw his head back. <laughs> and he just went into a nose dive that was my sunglasses coming off the back of my head uh, he went into a nose dive and the front of the board snapped he, he landed clean on the front of the board it snapped off at the front binding and then it was springtime and the snow was hollow and he just thudded and everyone stood on this snow felt the echo of his body hitting the snow and there was absolute silence the Gumby Chant had died And a a load of his mates ran out and kind of smothered him and there was this huddle for about two minutes and it, like, hushed whispers, is he dead? What's happened? Is he going to be all right? And then suddenly this fist pumps out from amongst all the people and the place loses it. Goppy! And he wandered off to do what he, in his own words, (laughs) described as a dog, which was to hole up for three or four days, piss blood and um, get himself better, but... And that was the beginning of your uh, broadcasting career.
0: Yeah. So how did you go from that to Ski Sunday?
1: Um, well, before we get onto to that, I'll say one thing. Uh, one of the guys at the BBC said, they're obviously, like, if you've got a broadcaster, they prepare their, who's ageing, they'll be gently preparing their reels. And they're doing that for Motti. And he, Motti, as iconic as he is as a commentator, hasn't actually got any big moments and he, he's, he told me about this because he said, Do you, you realise how much. You're lucky talking you're, about John Motson. John Motson, the football commentator. Yeah. Loads of stats, loads, but he hasn't got that big, like a motty moment. He
0: hasn't got like, like some people are on the pitch, they think it's all over or exactly. look at his face or, yeah. yeah.
1: And I've already, I've been, maybe it's the sports that I work in fundamentally, but I've been handed five or six huge moments. In my career Gumby's being one of them right right so I feel very privileged to have had that but yeah I did that and very slowly I was a very mediocre snowboarder I was a much better storyteller and I think you're being a bit harsh I think you know you you, you did you were a good snowboarder and you by by the standards that I'd set for myself yeah, I remember exactly. very obviously thinking at one stage Terrier's the same age as me and i've got a back 5 yeah but if you're going to compare yourself to terrier i mean for this what, but what that's I, what i was doing at the I time mean, I was like, i, mean, I
0: want to be good what i mean is like for the for the the standard of british noble at the time yeah you know it's easy to look back and say oh, yeah we were all shit but like for the standard at the time you you know you were you were a sponsored rider you i remember when we met you've been to the king of the hill in alaska like you know you, you
1: that's that certainly isn't something to sniffed out you know like that we're getting into a different territory here but I it's very very difficult I always I feel very strongly that the kind of snowboarding I'm best at no one ever sees I can I'm not bad at riding steep stuff but anytime I'm around anyone else I look fairly mediocre my freestyle skills are pedestrian at best
0: (laughs) but let's say so you 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 you're a snowboarder and then at what point did it start to change? I'd had. Onto the path that you're on now?
1: Um, I had a season where I'd. Instead of working as a windsurf instructor in Greece and earning a pittance and then kind of topping that up with work at Noah's Ark uh, in autumn when he was busy, uh, I worked on mega yachts and got a lot more money uh, one summer. And that gave me a lot more freedom to party and snowboard and unsurprisingly physically that wasn't sustainable and my knee gave out at the end of that season and I there's a part of me wonders if it was psychosomatic I was arriving at a point where I knew snowboarding didn't have or at least I thought it didn't have a long-term future I looked around at people like Jono Verity or James Stentford, who carried on way into their 30s and wonder if I could have changed it but I anyway that the knee broke and I started looking at other options I ended up working with you at White Lines and I absolutely loved it. I really, really enjoyed it. And at the same time, the sport was getting more and more profile. Events like BoardX, Boardmasters were starting to pop up in the UK, and that emceeing gig started to gain some momentum. It took three, four years working at White Lines and doing a little bit more, basically, honing your craft. I mean, I think you've been back and read some of the white lines. They're pretty embarrassing, some of them. But I've, I feel very strongly that they reflected our age and yeah, the spirit well, of snowboarding I mean, at if the we're time.
0: Talk about that. I mean, we were just in our early twenties, like very into snowboarding with a free rein to write whatever bollocks we wanted. So, not surprisingly, we did, didn't we? Yeah. I mean, obviously, some of it hasn't exactly aged well, but <laughs> I think you know it was of its time, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, you know. but I'm not sure I'd want my grandkids to read it. I'm it pretty way. glad most of it isn't online. But um. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, if you've got any old copies of White Lines, go and indulge yourself for a little bit. Um, I But I did that, and it was a very organic process for me. I, I learned on the... I was very lucky to be able to learn on the job. I think I was... Because you and Chris left for a season, I was nearly editor within nine months or a year.
0: Yeah, so I guess this is... 1999 2000 isn't it around then would you say
1: 98 98. Yeah, 98 was when i joined summer of 98 and then 99 i took over as editor i think or what, what was it because editor-in-chief was chod
0: yeah well we, let's be honest we we made it all up those job titles um <laughs> but this so this is the time when like you say you transition in from from full-time snowboarder if you like and then following opportunities that came along whether it be white lines whether it be MC and gigs whether it be like trips that you did and this is what led you to the the current sort of path
1: yeah but i i actually didn't understand what i wanted to do then as much as i enjoyed that job i never said no i was working for phil young who was doing by that stage he was doing his tv work but he was also consulting for big brands i helped him out with that we'd set up an event management company me Uh, Spencer Claridge and John Bates and Stu Brass got involved in that. Uh, I was doing the live MC and bits of TV work, editing white lines. I think at one stage I had about seven jobs and I, I had nearly a meltdown when uh, snow bombing and the bomb comp, which we were doing a bit of stuff with started to go under. I was like, wow, I can't really deal with this. And I learned, I had really, it was an important part of the process for me. I learned, okay, which of these jobs do I really enjoy? What do I want to chase and uh I learned to say no to stuff and that was that was really healthy because it people start to value what you do when you say no, and I was able to focus a hundred percent on what it was to be a journalist or a broadcaster and i I look back now. And what I know and what I've learned has accelerated, but the process started then. It was very slow and I learned from my mistakes, whereas I'm much more able now to identify and recognise problems or things that I need to improve rather than waiting for someone to tell me. But it was 2001, uh, I got some regular TV work and by 2002 I left White Lines and got, Uh, work in television in earnest and I left snowboarding for probably two or three years then I went back every now and again but it was intermittent I wasn't in the scene on a regular basis and then 2002 was really painful for me watching Salt Lake City because um, Ian Felton took the job and I said to him look and people can believe it or not but I wasn't selfish about it I genuinely wanted snowboarding to be represented in the UK I wasn't I didn't want the job for myself and when Ian Felton said I'm taking it uh, I said okay fine but come round let's watch some comps and I'll I'll coach you through it and he didn't call me and then you watch that broadcast back and it broke my heart watching that and the fact that snowboarding had a chance we had that was a brilliant snowboarding olympics and it just didn't get the attention it deserved. So when I got the call, I think it was in, it would have been November 2005. I was doing some DJing once a week in Birmingham for Kerrang! with Christian Stevenson. And Graham Bell called and said, would you want to do the Olympics? And I was like, yes. Yes, please. Yes, absolutely. And I went there. I took, I can't remember what I took, a box set of something and a PlayStation to force me not to go out. And I just I went and did the best job I possibly could for two and a half weeks and that that's when everything changed for me. I went from being kind of part time Well, Well, I, I, I was doing regular TV but I got a, a shot at the mainstream. Was that Jacobellis drama? Was that that, that was that Olympics? It was that brilliant women's so that- half pipe. Kelly Clark, Hannah Teter, Tora Bright, Sheryl Mass. Yeah. I got a great women's halfpipe. The men's border cross was brilliant. Uh, Sean White won his first gold and then... Jackabellis topped it off. It was a really, really strong snowboard Olympics, and that would have been one of those moments that you uh, are referring to, because that did become one of the iconic moments of that Olympic Games, didn't it? Well, I'd been locked up in this commentary booth. Like I was getting up at half three, four o'clock to catch buses to get to Bardonecchia from Cestriere, that would take six hours, and then you locked in the commentary box bus all the way back again, and then I'd literally have dinner and go go to bed for the next day and i didn't realize and then that Jackabellis moment happened and people started texting me and i was getting these emails saying they're playing your stuff on radio one and it was i was really shocked it was like right wow that's that's gone did I, you did you script it do you script no stuff like never that? never there's there's some lines that you think about but in without question the best stuff just comes to you. And that's the thing, commentary is a mood. It's not... You can be professional at it, and I think when you're younger and more precocious and you don't have anything to lose, you can come up with funny stuff that's close to the line. Now, I'd come up with that stuff so much less often now, Right.
0: So you try and do it much more organically, depending on what's unfolding in front of your eyes.
1: Well, up to that point, we've got to... I suppose to put it in context, I'd cut my teeth... Doing Boredex, where you've got eight hours of commentary, and you're just yelling at people and <laughs> commenting on anything that pops into your head. So you're you're kind of distilling that down, but the volume of commentary you're doing at an Olympics is so great that you kind of that professionalism starts to blur a little bit and you get to points sometimes where you just think you're talking to yourself again. So you start amusing yourself.
0: You must feel a responsibility though. I mean, it's the BBC, it's
1: the Olympics. Or do you not? I did feel a responsibility, but at the same time, I trust myself. Right. I'm I'm not arrogant, but I back myself. Yeah. I'd grown to that point where, in my mind, there were three or four people who were probably better than me, kind of the Todd Richards... Um, there, there are a few people around then, certainly people like Pat Bridges have more information, but I was, what Henry Jackson is to snowboarding now, I was then, I knew the tricks, I got very little wrong. So from Turin, this, the full-time Ski Sunday
0: gig came about.
1: Yeah, it was, um. Is
0: that how it happened?
1: Yeah, definitely. Well, they saw that snowboarding had a huge audience it created so much buzz around those games so obviously they thought there was a really good inspirational team at ski sunday it create it ruffled a few feathers because obviously the skiing community had kind of got their hierarchy set up for hazel irvine leaving and whoever was gonna succeed her but it was very the first year was very very difficult because they didn't know what to do with it and then i had a cameraman who I call Zoid, Chris Kirkham, Um, brilliant cameraman, so hardworking and really innovative. And he he just moved down to New Zealand, where I'd moved to, that summer. And I said to the BBC, look, can I go and make a couple of films? And I I can make them quite cheaply, and then you can see what we can do. I think this is the direction we should head in. Because I was just following graham around ski races graham bell the downhiller like a lost lamb and i made one on snow park and one on going skateboarding snowboarding and surfing in a day and they looked at those and were like this is brilliant what can you do and i made a list of all the trips and Things that I'd like to do in snowboarding is it's that when you wrote
0: down, I'd like to take a load of powder boards to the South Island of New Zealand and go heliboarding to test a ball? Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: and I remember got, that one. It
1: got signed off, yeah.
0: <laughs> Tough I, actually,
1: gig. I did a link, um, and it never got aired, surprisingly, but. If you're British, you'll understand the reference. Uh, I did a link with a helicopter flying around me that said, welcome to the biggest waste of licensed fee payers' money since <laughs> El Dorado. Which was, El Dorado was an enormously expensive uh, Spanish soap opera set with expats in Benidorm that lasted, I think, three or four episodes.
0: Oh, fair play to you. I mean, I remember watching that and thinking, wow, getting that on the BBC's coin, that is some effort. Um, so these days, you obviously, you're, you know, you're part of the furniture, if you like, a ski Sunday. Um, so how does it work each season? Do you put forward a number of ideas of stories that you want to cover? And obviously, you're trying to find the interesting stories in snowboarding.
1: Exactly. And I don't limit myself to snowboarding. I'm really lucky. Um, I'm I back, Like I said before, I back myself and I'm not protective of my role. And it's, it's really nice. We've had a couple of really good uh, producers come in who've shaped the show into what it is today. So I've got Tim Ward and Jenny Jones behind me, so I don't need to focus on freestyle snowboarding particularly i can focus on the stuff free riding adventure stuff that really interests me tim can go and do legs of steel stuff jenny can do pathway stuff or uh focus on the full moon crew she tried to sort that out this year i know so you get um i feel like we've got a really strong arm of ski sundays represented with free it's not not just snowboarding but freestyle and kind of free riding so it's that I get to put in ideas, it's getting harder and harder in the media industry to find ways on the budgets we have. Like I don't pay to go on, uh, like we can't afford to make a show. Like for example, we followed timelines, uh, mission steeps, where Xavier Diller and Sam Antamatin took those paramotors to Svalbard and then to Alaska. I get in touch with the production company and say. Look, this is what I can offer you: ten minutes of exposure on the BBC. Can you uh, give me an hour's camera time a day? So it's uh, all the BBC are covering on my flights, and then I fly out there and make these shows. And it's a one-off. This year, we went to I went to Israel with Transworld and said, "Can I borrow some camera time to do some links?" So okay. it's That's interesting. It's, it's really there's this preconception that we have so many resources Ski Sunday is made on a shoestring by some of the most brilliant and creative talents because they're able to like last night we finished editing Aaron Style at 3am and then that was that show was driven to Munich and played out back to Manchester so you there's so many people who work so hard to make that happen it's a tiny operation compared I mean you could probably make a season of Ski Sunday out of one match-of-the-day budget, probably wow. less.
0: Okay, so you have to be really creative with the way that you find these opportunities to get them on the TV, essentially. Absolutely. Okay. And how are the BBC with snowboarding these days? Do they understand it more, or are they a bit more accepting of it? Because, you know, over the years there's been some fairly infamous occasions where the mask has slipped a little bit, whether it's like Claire Baldin and it's not a real sport
1: and that kind of thing I mean is is it culturally are they a bit more attuned with it these days definitely absolutely and that's come with the level of riding we have while there was no British interest it was really easy to marginalize it as one of the niche sports pretending or masquerading as an Olympic sport but I think the you look at where we are with the Summer Olympics now following so the Winter Olympics definitely pioneered the idea of how to appeal to a younger audience. And they're now, because the Summer Olympics, I think, are their crown jewels, the global appeal of the Winter Olympics is nowhere near as big as the summers. So they've they've double-checked it and triple-checked it with the Games now. Snowboarding's 20 years old at the Olympics in 2018. And, I mean, there's a lot of debate to be had around whether that's been a good thing. But skateboarding and surfing are on that gravy train now, whether they like it or not. It's going to be... I'd love to talk to some surfers and skaters about that in 20 years time. The climbing as well. Yeah, I mean, they, it, at least surfing and skating look like they've been taken at Street League and the Vans Park Series. Skating, I think, is, has done best. Surfing needed, I reckon, another two cycles to get the wave pools up to scratch where you could, because the idea of building a wave pool is the opposite of building a bobsleigh track. You build a wave pool in Tokyo, that thing's gonna be rammed. That's a good <laughs> legacy not a bobsleigh track. Yeah. Whereas and instead we're going to see surfing contested in knee high waves 3 hours away from the host city. It's there's a little bit lost there for me.
0: So what ambitions do you have as a broadcaster these days? Given that you've been 10 years in in that role and you've you obviously accrued a lot of experience as a broadcaster. What do you see yourself doing in the future? <sighs>
1: It's that's a really difficult question because fundamentally the landscape is changing. Media outlets are facing, if not huge, if not bankruptcies and liquidation, they're facing huge model changes. We've seen that over the last five years. The way people consume media now is, print journalism, feels like it will be dead. In. I, mean, I I love reading long-form pieces, but I feel like I'm in a huge minority and the commissions I get asked to write now are rarely over 1,200 words. People just don't consume stories in the same way and I'm very lucky in that I get to do it on TV, but budgets are shrinking everywhere. When the BBC tell you that budgets are shrinking, you know something's up. Like That's been untouchable for 10 years and with actually seeing a visible pinch now. So... Um, I've retreated for. I feel like subconscious. I, nothing that I've done on purpose, but I've gone more back into action sports recently. I've un, I understand that I will never be regarded. I'm not for the BBC especially. I'm not. I accept I'm not vanilla enough to be a Claire Balding, or you need to be so squeaky clean. And my past isn't. It's it's something that scares them, and I. It's not something that I hold against them at all. Uh, I have a role I'm really useful for the Winter Olympics and Ski Sunday, and that's that. But uh, the last two years, I've been developing a role at Red Bull as kind of their Ron Burgundy, I suppose. (laughs) And I get to go to all of their big flagship events, some of my favourite ones. The only one I haven't done is uh, Rampage, but the broadcasters on that, the guys who host that are so, so good. Um, I get uh, Verbier Extreme, US Open in Vail erzberg rodeo um and this X is for Fires red bull sorry this is for red bull tv yeah is it? and some of the sports i know some of them i don't but i'm meeting really really interesting people watching incredible sports and it's a real challenge as a broadcaster to learn those sports understand them and then be able to speak not knowledgeable knowledgeably but to be able to in- ask intelligent questions about those sports and the last two years has been really really good fun developing that and i hope that's that's where I'd see my future. In somewhere like Red Bull where I can live within action sports but develop a role that's on a par with any traditional sports broadcaster. Okay.
0: Your work with the BBC, I mean, you've definitely achieved some notoriety. To research (laughs) this, I read a piece in the Belfast Telegraph that described you as an ageing hipster. Uh, Obviously, you've been done by the Daily Mail... You know, you've been done by Private Eye. You got a lot of criticism after Sochi for the commentary on Jenny's gold. I mean, does any of that affect you? Are you bothered by any of that?
1: Uh, the stuff um, with Jenny, I was massively affected by at the time, but I, I wouldn't give that back for the world. At the time, I, I kind of saw it coming, uh, like I the the dynamic we had in the commentary, but. And I was I was frustrated that I didn't do more to control it. And I, I have to take responsibility for that. But it was... Um, and it was highly unprofessional. I can't stand to listen to it back now. And I feel very, very sorry uh, for Jenny that it's not a better job on there. Um, really? Yeah, I do. I, I do feel that. She's never said it. I've said it to I've said that to her. And she's like, no, don't be silly. She doesn't care. But I feel like it deserves... Like, if it had been better commentary, it might have got a bit more replay. But you can't you can't beat yourself up about that. But what was fascinating, it was a quiet news week, and that story set the agenda in sport for four or five days afterwards. And I was soaking it up, just cringing every day as the criticism stacked up. There was some lovely support, but um, I kind of took it on the chin and was like, OK, this is bad. I didn't have any work booked for that year and my calendar was full three weeks after that. It was the first lesson I'd always subscribe to, keep your nose down, do the best job you can and you'll progress. Absolute fallacy. <laughs> do something stupid really <laughs> badly. <laughs> Get loads of publicity for it and in media, in reality TV, the best proof. Idiots who can't do anything, who get hired for really high-profile jobs because they've been an idiot on reality TV, they get media careers. And that was the first practical lesson I had in that side of the media. And I I won't go down that route again. I would never purposely do it. But I've learned that, okay, this is politics. How far you're willing to demean yourself will ultimately... Dignity and TV presenting don't go hand in hand (laughs) is what I'm getting at.
0: OK, well, let's talk a little bit about snowboarding, I think. So how did you first get into it?
1: My, I come from a sailing family. Uh, both my mum and my dad's family grew up uh, on the Thames Estuary in Essex, and they met through sailing. And uh, there, there's a certain level. They're not like yachts. It's not money. It's just a love of the ocean and adventure. Um, and that was passed down. My granddad was one of the first people to get a windsurfer in the country. And there was this real sense of kind of let's go out, like life's for having fun. Um, my dad, when we were 12, there was a dry slope in Gloucester. We'd moved there. And uh, he decided we were going to learn to ski as a family. So we started going up to the dry slope. Eddie the Eagle was up there. <laughs> and it was, it was a really good scene on the dry slopes back then they were huge they were cutting edge they were what the domes are today and my mum got us she was a teacher she got us on the side of some ski holidays so we tried out snow and like everyone there's that okay this is really cool thing to do but the environment had a massive impact on me i loved the mountains and that was it was quite it had a profound effect and then i was skateboarding as well And then snowboarding arrived and it was a perfect storm for me. Uh, The fact that you could skate on snow, we had the dry slope close by and James Stentiford, the British snowboarder, uh, moved in. I mean, it was was Providence. He moved in two doors down. His sister used to babysit. He had a fly-off ramp outside the house. And we skated together and then James had come from Germany, went back to Germany and did a season. And the idea that someone from Gloucester could go and snowboard and live like that was just a revelation to me. And that became... I had a choice. I I was looking at going to Western Australia to go windsurfing for a season or going to the Alps. And I went to the Alps. So what did snowboarding mean to you about them? God, that's a whopping great question. I... I have a really focused mind. I can, if I'm into something, I'm completely single-minded. I, my wife says that it's quite a male trait. I've se- But I've seen other people have it, but I just didn't care about anything except for skateboarding between kind of nine and 13, 14. And I knew everything about that culture. I was completely immersed in it. And snowboarding took its place... A pivotal point, I was arriving in my teens at fourteen and fourteen to nineteen. I was part of that I was able to be a part of that explosion. Tamworth was built when I was sixteen, and that was an hour and twenty minutes drive. I could join the Noah's Ark shop trip up there and I was just getting exposed to these amazingly inspirational people who every time whether I was reading about them in the magazines or actually meeting them on slopes just would expand your mind and intellectually socially physically it was it was everything I wanted and growing up in a town like Gloucester you're highly aware when you're into skateboarding that life's happening somewhere else and suddenly the snowboarding was happening around me but there was an opportunity to follow it and that my mum and dad were really cool they didn't stop me I did a really half-hearted art foundation course and a Seventeen? Uh 18, left for my first season. And they, they backed me. I, I was a middle-class kid. My mum was able to give me a credit card and said, for emergencies, <laughs> just call us if you need to. And I I did cut, a lot of cut things. Cut to Dick's Tea Bar. Yeah. <laughs> no, I didn't. I, I used it to stitch my chin up. I put <laughs> uh, my knee through my chin and the guy would not stitch me up until... I'd paid for everything. I think he could smell he could smell the pore on me, and um, he made me. I had someone's hat stuffed into this gaping hole in my chin where you could see my jawbone, and I went down to the pharmacy and had to spend 120 quid on sutures and needles and gauzes, and then stumble back there. I'd knocked myself absolutely cold. I was stumbling around, but the state I was in, probably just, people just thought I was drunk, probably, but. Yeah, I didn't I didn't look back at all because uh, my mum put a request out on Valdez Air Radio for me to call home because she hadn't heard from me for three months. Oh, bless <laughs> her. You bad poor, son. Poor Jill, yeah. It, yeah, I it wasn't the best, but it was a testament to how much fun I was having.
0: <laughs> and did you find yourself part of the UK scene, if you like, from the beginning? I don't know. That's...
1: Uh... Yeah, I do. I I don't think obviously you're not part of the elite straight away. It's a slow process, and I was always I was very intrigued by that. That's an interesting question because when I was at White Lines, you'd come across people who felt they'd have chips on their shoulders because they felt like they weren't a part of the scene. And you're like, but you are. You're you maybe not part of the scene that you want to be part of. There's this idea that there's a a royalty or a clique at the top, but. That was never the case for me. I started at Noah's Ark just hanging out with that crew, local shop guys, and then you'd go up to Tamworth. Neil McNabb was up there. He'll he'll probably deny this story, but he was he was a heavy drinker at that time. He had a necklace with fuck off written in little beads around it. And, wow. Uh, I walked up to him as a 16-year-old and was like, nice necklace. He was like my hero, and he went, you can read, can't you? <laughs> <laughs> wow.
0: Punchy. <laughs>
1: yeah, it was. And I was like, ah, oh. but... He was probably the only person that I had any negativity from ever. I mean, you you think about the people who were there then. Russ Ward, Danny Wheeler, Chris and Stu would come down. You were probably down there at some stage. You'd have Jeremy Sladem, Mark Chester, um, Jamie Baker, Ian Bridges, Tim, Gendall. Oh, I remember seeing Cybras down there. They were just like... <laughs> It was an enormous party, and everyone was riding as hard as they could ride on this tiny little dome, and a kicker with a kind of compacted pit of an of ice for a landing. But I, yeah, I cherished cherished those days, and at the time, I really enjoyed it. And what's interesting now is looking back, and I am so so grateful. Snowboarding keeps on giving for me. I, I consider myself ridiculously lucky
0: well that was my next question actually what what does it mean to you now
1: it's given me pretty much all of some lifelong relationships friendships that I can't put a value on uh, my wife uh, I met through snowboarding and experiences that you can't buy I and mean, I've camped in Alaska with some of the world's best free riders I've lived in igloos with mates at high altitude, I've done, I had moments, I had one, one day, uh, and I don't think many people could do this, but I think maybe Rowan Cultus this morning will be feeling the same way that I felt on this day, I had one day in Air where I did tricks I just never thought I'd do, perfect kicker, ever so slightly regular front side leaning, so not a hip, but slightly front side, and I did a stale fish, then I did a front three, cab three, two cab fives, and a switch backside five. Landed everything and rode away. And then I entered a border cross the next day and broke my knee. <laughs> you went out on a high. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that moment, I can still... I would have been 22 then, and I can still remember the sensation of flying through the cab fives and then landing the switch side five. And there don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing that I hold sensations like that so highly but it was yeah I can remember that feeling
0: do you still get those
1: sensations when you're snowboarding today less so but I. where do you get it from today um lines I did a cliff last year and I surprised myself how fast I hit it and I absolutely flew but I knew from the moment I took off I have more way more experience and I'm way less reckless now and when I do stretch myself, it usually, touch wood, goes well. And I did, it wasn't a big drop, it was probably only 20 foot, but because of the speed I was going, I probably travelled 40 or 50 feet. And really stomping that hard and then laying into a big turn was the highlight of last year. I did a front side three nose bone at the start of this year and critically an old friend saw it. I bumped into him randomly at the top of a lift. And I was like, let's do a hot lap. And then I lost him straight away. Mm. But he'd caught up enough to see that. And I, I didn't know. I texted him and said, oh, we'll catch up for a beer later. And he said, oh, that was a, that was a pretty good frontside three you did there. And I couldn't hold it in. I was like, yeah, it was the first one i done. It was amazing. <laughs> you saw it. Probably yes. couldn't keep my cool. But yeah, that was, that was worth uh, 20 years of slams.
0: Do you buy into like, the idea that there's anything spiritual about snowboarding? Because people do.
1: It's valid. Is that something that you you found? Not in the act of it, I don't think. I think it's a very selfish, indulgent pursuit in the act of it. I think the spirituality comes back to what I said about the environment. I do, it doesn't matter whether you're a snowboarder a skier, a climber. I think the mountains have such an immense power. And what I find interesting is... Flicking between freestyle environments and freeride environments. In freestyle, there's this huge capacity for ego and arrogance if you want to indulge it. There's a lot of posturing and it's about style. Whereas if you spend time with freeriders, there's always a humility. They understand the power of the mountains and it's very rare that you come across big egos in freeriding. And that, for me, sums it up. I think the mountains, for me, are the most important bit.
0: Okay, well, the next thing I wanted to talk about was the lifestyle that you lead really, because it's full on. I mean, you know, we've been friends for a long time. We've been friends for like 20 years now and I've watched the lifestyle that you lead and it's, it's really hectic. It's, you you do a lot of traveling, you balance being a family man with a career, you know, you're a husband, you're a dad. How do you, how do you balance that?
1: It's, I think probably the, the, Biggest secret to what I do is my wife, Sean, and the fact that she when we met I was doing this and she accepted that and has supported me doing that. She's never asked me to change. And I've watched a lot of friends who had very glamorous looking jobs that when you actually try and live with those people, it's really, really difficult to cope with that. And I've seen a lot of people struggle in relationships over the years because what looks glamorous, once you work out that it's not, people try and change that. And you've got to try and work around it. And Shana's never done that to me. She's never tried to curb what I want to do. And I, I have so much respect for her for that. But it's what i'm finding now i've arrived in my 40s and my passion for travel is diminished in the sense i will make special exceptions Uh, i turned myself inside out this year between two jobs to go to israel for four days because i knew that i was going to the middle east to ride powder like that it just doesn't happen but a lot of other stuff now, I have the luxury of being able to say no. So it's, it slows down and my winters are always crazy. They're always nuts and that's always been the way. How, how often are you away each year,
0: would you say? Six months. That's, that's a big amount of time yep. to be away. How difficult is it to transition back into family life?
1: That is the biggest hurdle I face in my life it's the hardest thing that I do, learning that, and I'm still working on this, I haven't, I've by no means mastered it, and it comes back to Sean and her patience, is like, when you go to an event, it's a party, and more and more, I remove myself now from that scene, and I don't I don't feel the need. Like, I didn't go and party at uh, Aaron style last night in Innsbruck. And that's one of the big ones of the year. But I I couldn't with work to a degree. But at the same time, it's thinking, okay, my fun now is going to cost the family in two days' time when I go home hungover or grumpy or tired. And it's working those factors, eating well, trying to do... um, some exercise staying fit so that you're not kind of just it's so easy to eat out every night eat badly and then have a couple of beers so do you follow a bit of a regime eating fitness eating yes like it's I think food is food more than exercise is the important bit I, I move anyway like I'm an energetic person I don't really struggle with that but I find this year especially, I, because we're based in Europe at the moment, Sean cooks a lot of really good food. And I got to eat for probably three months, May to July, really, really well. Then I had a couple of back-to-back jobs through high summer, and it finished with uh, 10 days in the States. We were in Kentucky. For, I, it was Boston, New York, Kentucky and there was some pretty good fried chicken. And I just went nuts, had beers, ate chicken. And I suddenly realized I'd been feeling like a 21 year old in June, May and June. I'd had a couple of big slams on a mountain bike and got away with it. And I came back from the end of that America trip having eaten badly for a month. And I felt like a 40 year old again. And I slowly worked that back again, ate well, and felt so, so good. Started doing a bit of yoga at the end of the year and felt really strong, really fit. And there is no reason that you can... That you, there's no reason that you can't carry on doing what we've been doing way into our 50s if you're sensible about it. You're not rec- reckless if you're eating well. I truly believe that. I genuinely believe it. But if you just sidle away, like beer steals flexibility you start letting the tyre pump up and then before you know it you start one injury you sit on the couch a little bit more and eat worse and then it's all gone oh, you got to
0: you know at our venerable age early 40s you've got to be on top of it I was in the Maldives there's a guy in his 60s charging you know and I was like I want to be that
1: guy well you take your, your muscle mass your strength may disappear but your stamina you'll take from your early 30s into your 60s and if, if you can do that, uh, this is what I love about action sports at the moment. Skateboarding, surfing and snowboarding, you're coming into that period where we're defining, not necessarily the legends, but we're seeing how far the everyday person can last. Because football, you look at footballers and they mostly stop playing Walking by... Walking football. 40s. Yeah. Well, I, in New Zealand, where... I've never seen this in the UK. Tell me I'm wrong, but... I play a little bit in NZ, and there's an over 60s team. They come out, and it's pretty much walking football. But they no, love th-
0: it. It's a thing, walking football. Like it is a thing. It's like really? an organised. Like, yeah, yeah. It's, no, I wasn't joking. No, it's like um, I think it's over 50s. You can't run. It's, there's leagues. Epic. Yeah, there's leagues. There's it's organised and. I but mean, that's, I, I, this, I, that's a brilliant example. I'd do it, you know, if I couldn't run. You yeah.
1: Know, I'd st- if you could still play, you know, and you could still get out there for sure. And and this is what we're talking about. Like, really, surfing's only uh, lung capacity. Skateboarding and snowboarding, the level of impact is very, very different. Like, I watched a guy the other day, an 80-year-old skier. I'm guessing he, he looked like he was in his 80s, and he was a cat. He had some style. He came down this piece like arcing out some nice turns came to a stop he clicked off both of his skis by standing on the backs of the bindings but he couldn't pick them up so he had to stand on the tip (laughs) hook his pole under the back and then lift up each ski and suddenly I thought I realized step-ins are going to come back for snowboarding moment you get someone in their 60s 70s step-ins are back
0: so you recently moved I mean your your family are based in New Zealand because Sean's from New Zealand. Uh, the kids are Kiwis, aren't they? And you've recently moved the family to Switzerland and you're now living in Verbier. So what, why did you do that?
1: We've been in New Zealand for 10 years. Uh, my kids are, were nine and seven when we left New Zealand and I had asked Sean if we could do a sort of last hurrah in Europe before they settled into serious secondary school. Uh, or what is intermediate over there they start the same age as we'd start secondary at 11 um, and i wanted to come over and have an adventure before they started serious school and at the same time new zealand had just introduced a system where schools could opt in to use devices for their learning and we'd fought our local school to stop the kids not use like get this they don't use pens in class. All of their learning is done on a screen. And the differences that we'd seen in the kids' personality in the first two months of that system were just ridiculous. So we were fighting the school trying to get a low device use or device-free class and they weren't having it. And Europe offers that still. It was So there were, there were a couple of factors involved. And I'd been offered this work with Red Bull, which was predominantly Europe-based as well. So we came back for a winter. It was very difficult to settle. um, And the kids found it hard with the language barrier. And we realised, and my work was going well, so we realised if we leave now, then it's going to be a negative experience for the kids. So we decided to stick it out for another year. It's, what are we now, February... 17, so we've done 14 months. And it's good. We have really good quality of life. Verbier is out of control. I'm not going to lie, it's not cheap. But... <laughs> no shit. <laughs> it's. I've said this to a couple of people, it's the world's most expensive, but the world's best theme park. I've done 27 winters. No, I haven't. I've done 24 winters, maybe. And... The summer and the autumn were better, I think, than any of the winters I've done. It wow. really blew my mind. The, I've, one of the things, I've always been good at all of the things we do as a family, and then learning to mountain bike, all of us together, was just hilarious. Like, death by bike is a thing. I can see it. I've scared myself the same way that I scared myself when I was 19 on a snowboard, I think. But climbing, walking, swimming... And what, I, I suppose it's the theme of this in a way. The mountains are, I absolutely love them. And I wake up every morning, I can see the Mont Blanc Massif, I can see the Grand Combin Glacier, and it just blows my mind. I'm in awe of them every day. And in autumn, seeing 4,500-metre peaks down to 3,000 still snowy and then having this red line where all the blueberry bushes are, like fruiting and then orange, then yellow, then green, the sort of alpine rainbow in the landscape is just, it's insane. And there's no one up there then. If you ever want to go on a really good alpine holiday, go in October. It's mental. Is it going to be difficult to go back to New Zealand? Well, I mean, New Zealand's not too shabby on the landscape, but I'm I'm considering career change like the travel that you mentioned earlier is exhausting and I'm still, I feel like 40 is still young and if I want to do something else then I'm, I might do it. I'm really open at the moment but I'm at a really pivotal stage. There's a lot going on in New Zealand, there's a lot of things that I want to do. i thought about mountain guiding, um, there's a couple of really good companies in New Zealand who are based on the South Island that would let me go, hopefully work for them and be around the mountains but then where i live in auckland there's four incredible skate bowls within 10 minutes of my house i'm five minutes from the east coast half an hour from the west coast there's empty surf surrounding you everywhere it's it's a pretty exciting place to live but it's just a really long way from anywhere
0: it's not the easiest commute that's for sure um (laughs) (laughs) I've got a good question for you. If you could only do one of surfing, skateboarding or snowboarding, what would you choose?
1: Can I have my time again or is it now? It's now. I think surfing. I have a distinct feeling with snowboarding like I owe it. Like I've had more than my fair share of incredible experiences. I've had so many powder days. I've done things that I never thought physically I'd be able to do. I really pushed myself to a limit. And there's a little element of me. I I enjoy the simple things in snowboarding, but very often I'll focus on what I can't do rather than what I can do. Skateboarding, I love dearly, and it's the opposite. I'm so rubbish, so I'm allowed to project everything I want to do rather than what I can't do. But the impact hurt, It hurts more and more. Like slamming on concrete now, you feel for weeks, not days. But surfing, I still, I'm good enough to enjoy it. But there's still so, so many surprises and so many things. You can get humiliated, and then you can do something that's incredible in the same session it's i think probably surfing i would stick with if i could fix my surfer's ear. <laughs> oh I've, I've
0: got that as well i feel your pain okay so if you're gonna suck off snowboarding i'll give you one final session <laughs> where are you gonna go
1: easy uh alaska i've been in my time snowboarding i've been very very lucky i think i'm on 8th or ninth trip up there? No, 10th or 11th actually, yeah. And I'm going again this March. And I understand the game up there now. Because it is a game. It's very... It's unlike anything you can do in the lower 48 or Europe. Because you're working with guides. There's the politics of how much you're paying. There's your ability level. Your expectations. And then your personal experience. And... Humility, because try you, everyone turns up and wants to go and ride a Travis Rice line. But to do that, the company, you've got to work up to that. So you've got to be paying enough money to warrant uh, a company trusting you to go to that terrain. On top of that, the guide who's going to take you there needs to know he's going to step out onto the face first two or three times during the day before you go there and he needs to know that you can save him. There's so many factors working there that it takes time to learn and I think that's why a lot of people go back to the same operations because they know the guides know them, the helicopter pilots know them and you build up this trust and I've been lucky to go back to Haynes for five or six years now and with work and no people and last year I got put on a big spine line and it was unreal it's ridiculous being able to actually rather I mean it's so steep those spine lines if you snowboard there's nothing that can prepare you for it because your piece is three foot wide this spine and it's so steep and you've got to commit to the fact that, okay, I can slow myself down hopping either side of this. And then actually getting that, something that you've seen in videos and fantasised about, was, for me, that was And, and
0: work so hard and put the time in and put the, the commitment in to get to that position as well.
1: Yeah, for me, that was, that was probably the most proud moment for me, of the snowboarding I've done, thinking, I can actually, yeah, I can do this. I've done that. I've done a spine in Alaska. There you go, then. I it, it's over.
0: Just surfing for you from now on, Eddie. Yep. <laughs> um, all right, well, we've just got a few
1: more questions, really. Do you have a regret? I didn't used to at all. I didn't used to have any gr- regrets. And that, that was actually a key part of my success as a broadcaster because I had no embarrassment. And I actually wasn't self-aware enough to know when I'd mortally offended people or... And I I think, um, I think I did that a lot. Well, I remember you saying to me once that you just weren't born with the embarrassment gene. No, I wasn't. And for a long time, I, I imagine there's a lot of people out there who really, who've met me who don't particularly like me, who met me when I was in my 20s. What, what do you think they would dislike about you? I think if you could suspend yourself from how offensive I was, you, I would think I was quite good fun to be around. But I think I was loud and controlling the same things that made me a good live mc at that time were probably also quite annoying for some people um i don't know if i necessarily regret that though do
0: you feel (laughs) like you've um fulfilled your potential
1: that's a good question I genuinely don't know. I think... I wonder what would have happened if I'd gone to university. I don't think I was ready for it. I argued quite a long... My mum, as an academic, desperately wanted me to go and felt it was a waste. I argued that university would always be there and that physically what I wanted to do wouldn't be. And that was eventually what won over I think physically I think I reached I I I, I may I, actually if I if we look at it physically I didn't reach my potential no I wasted it I squandered it uh, partying but I wouldn't change that I think if I'd have had the structure that we see with athletes today I potentially could have been quite good but I wouldn't change that. I loved the fact that it was as much about the social as it was about the sport. Work-wise, no, I haven't. But that's a lifestyle decision I made to move to New Zealand to be with my wife. So I probably, if I'd have stayed in the UK, I could have done more, but I'm really happy with where I'm at. I'm not fantastically rich, but I I do work that I love and I really, really enjoy it and I get a lot of personal satisfaction from it and I have a great family and plenty of playtime. So, yeah, If in terms of I maybe haven't reached potential in certain areas, but I think I have a really balanced life and I'm very, very lucky in that respect.
0: I think that's a really good note to end it. So... Uh...
1: Ed Lee, thanks very much. Thank you very much. That was really interesting.
0: So there you go. That was Ed Lee. And um, I hope you enjoyed it. As you can tell, Ed's got a massive heart, big personality, great company. As I said at the beginning, he's one of my oldest mates, so clearly I'm going to be biased. But I thought it was a really interesting conversation. I really enjoyed hearing about how Ed got where he is, the decisions that he's made to sustain this enviable lifestyle that he's carved out for himself how he balances work and travel with being a family man how hard he works at um, keeping himself interested and and finding new experiences and adventures to to quench the stoke that he's got so yeah as it should be for a man in his position inspirational stuff so nice one Ed and thanks for listening I hope you uh, enjoyed it if you did enjoy it please help me share the word so you can uh, leave us a review on iTunes you can uh, share it on social media you can um, or you could just give it to a friend tell someone in person maybe don't even use social media maybe just tell your mate who likes snowboarding and action sports that you've heard this podcast and it's worth a go so we'll be back next time episode two is Andrew Cotton big wave surfer fascinating conversation this one in which Cotty explained how he got where he is today what it's like surfing Nazare how he hooked up with Garrett McNamara what it's like surfing Mavericks Very, very interesting stuff from a very interesting and warm character, Andrew Cotton. So yeah, look out for that one.